So we're back for uh, another interview and uh, very privileged, very honoured today to have the wonderful Charlie Morgan with us all the way from Nashville. So Charlie, uh, thanks very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's lockdown for you, isn't it? You know, it's, uh, but there you go. Things hopefully lifting and, and, and getting a bit more pleasant for everybody. So, uh, yeah, once again, really appreciate it. Now, I guess the place to start is at the beginning. Where did, it, where did the, the passion for drums come from for you? Uh, yeah, um, actually, well, if you want to go back that far, um, I think I was living in Switzerland at the time. My father was an advertising um, executive, and uh, he, got a, he got a gig with... Uh, um, American company in, in Geneva, Switzerland. And we lived there for almost three years between the age of 11 and 14. And um, yeah, my, I had a friend at school, a French, Swiss, Swiss French friend at school mm -hmm. who had a band and he had a drum kit in his basement. And uh, he, he was actually, he wanted me to go and create lyric maps for him in phonetic uh out, like phonetically translated so that he could pronounce the stuff with an american accent or british okay. accent as opposed to a french accent so i was writing this stuff down in phonetic alphabet you know for him <laughs> and um we had this drum kit in the corner of his basement you know and um, i got on, i think i one day when i was about 14 i got on the kit and started playing a rhythm and he turned to me he said how long, how long did it take you to get that and i said i don't know i'm just playing what ringo plays <laughs> I, I, I just looked at ringo and i'm starting playing what he plays he said that that took me about six months he said to get me to get the simplest beat he said it took me six months to get in my independence for that and i said well it just it seems quite easy to me and and it did it did seem quite easy you know obviously i was 14 and yeah you know you're, you're learning stuff at such a rate at the age of 14 then I thought no more of it, and I came back to England, and uh, I was at school, and a friend of mine who actually had learned cello, his dad played cello for the Beatles, mm -hmm. and his uncle played viola, and he'd learned cello, and he was playing guitar now. Um, and I'd known him since we were about six or seven. He, he, uh, he came to me one day, and he said, here, I'm, I'm starting a band. Do you know anyone who will play drums at, in school? And I just said, I'll do it. <laughs> and I got myself a gigster. Okay. I got a bass drum, a snare drum and a hi-hat from the local corner store. And I painted it purple. I remember that. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> you know, I don't know why, but it was, uh, and that, that's what I started on in his garage, literally in his garage. And, um, but I think of that band, I was the only person that ended up turning pro. And I had no thoughts about it, um, even right the way up to almost leaving school. Um, I was going to be a marine biologist. I was studying right. all, all the sciences, and I was going to be a marine biologist. That was my passion. Mm. And um, but my last, my last term at school, I started playing in the pubs three or four nights a week with different bands. And... <laughs> I actually got halfway through the last term and the headmaster called me in and said he, he felt that my extracurricular activities, that's what he called them, <laughs> were, were getting in the way of my schoolwork. 
Uh, and I kind of begged to differ. I said, I told him that I felt that my schoolwork was actually getting in the way of <laughs> this. And we agreed to go our separate ways. And I left before the final exams. I left before my A-levels. Brilliant. Uh, hit the road with a band in Germany uh, two months later. So when was your first, um, obviously, that's, obviously that's a professional gig, I appreciate that. When did things start to, you know, really snowball for you? Well, you know, I mean, I did this, I joined this band called Renegade Jones mm -hmm. in 1973. And as I said, we went to Germany and we toured all over the UK. We had a, a big old um, a comma truck uh, that we'd built a bulkhead in all the gear was behind the bulkhead and we had four bunks in the, in the, in the comma truck. And, and we were going out doing gigs for like 50 quid a gig, but we somehow were doing enough gigs a week to make enough money for us to all get like 20 quid in our pockets clear yeah. at the end of the week. And we were making a living. And then of course, gas prices in 1974 rocketed upwards. And um, suddenly we weren't making a living. Yeah. And we all went our separate ways. But, uh, and then I was still playing in all, you know, pub mid seventies was pub rock. You know, yeah. it was, yeah. I was playing in different pub bands and, um, regularly, but, um, I had to kind of supplement my income during that time. Cause I really wasn't making more than about 10 or 15 quid a night, you know, which we, uh, you could buy a few drinks and packet of fags and things. So I did smoke in those days, mm -hmm. but, um, uh, so I started doing uh, day jobs. I had various day jobs, and one of them was driving an air freight truck at Heathrow. All right. Because I could start at four in the morning, and I could finish at four in the evening, get home, have a shower, change, throw my drums in the back of the car, and drive off and do a gig at, you know, from 9 p.m. to 11, uh, and I'd get home at midnight, uh, and I was surviving on less than four hours sleep a night. And then Sunday I'd sleep all day, you know, but uh, I was doing that, you know, in the mid seventies, I was supplementing my income by earning a living uh, as a truck driver and um, playing probably Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, maybe sometimes Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday mm. uh, in pubs. And then just literally, yeah, Sunday I'd sleep all day. <laughs> Trying to catch up a little bit. Yeah. Oh, dear me. So once, obviously, you know, you've played with some incredible names over the years. Uh, I've been on your, your website actually having a look this week, and uh, the disco discography is just incredible. Now, who, uh, who, who was the first um, big name that you, you came into contact with? I think that was Kate Bush. And, mm. and the reason that happened was I was part of a band that had signed up to um, a record label in the mid-70s, and uh, we were signed up, and we ended up having no success whatsoever. But it turned out the guitarist and the bass player ended up in Kate Bush's band. In fact, the bass player was Del, who ended oh. up with Kate's, uh, Del Palmer. Yeah. And we've been friends since 1975. Mm. Um, but, uh, and he called me. This is quite funny because he called me um, uh, to do to do some work with Kate, and I met I went to met Kate, and she was still under her development deal, 
and the first album hadn't come out and I heard her stuff. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Mm. But I was, at the time I was signed to a, a band called Alibi, which was being produced by Muff Winwood, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who was managing Island Studios, the Basing Street, in, uh, just off uh, Portobello Road. And I was there doing this album on Dead Time with Muff Winwood producing it. And so I turned her down. <laughs> and, uh, and then our deal fell through with um, the, the band, because uh, Muff was doing several bands on Dead Time. And actually one of the bands that was there at the same time as us, and we would bump into all the time, was Dire Straits. And they were doing the very first album, which yeah. Muff managed to get signed to, uh, was it Polygram? I can't remember now who they signed I to. couldn't tell you, I'm not anyway, sure. Anyway, they, they got signed, we didn't. And um, the band Alibi kind of, it fell through. We, you know, we were doing stuff still occasionally doing tracks in the late seventies. But uh, then I got, Kate got her first success and I got a phone call, a panic phone call. I remember I was sitting at home, got a phone call from Dell. He said, Charlie, can you come with us to Cologne and do a TV show tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, what's going on? I said, well, our drummer, can't leave the country because he's got work permit problems. Because apparently he was from Brazil, this guy. Okay. I, I think his name was Sergio. But um, so I said, yeah, okay. And he said, well, okay, all right. Um, I'm, I'm going to send you a cassette of the songs we're going to do. Because in those days, and, and I think he sent it by bike. <laughs> Somebody from EMI sent it. And uh, so I learned, and I remember we went over and did a, it was a TV show called Bio's Bahnhof, which was actually in, a big old um, railway. Um, it was it was in a railway turn turntable kind of marshalling um, shed, mm. and I, they actually wheeled us on on a truck and wheeled us back off. And they, they were using these trucks as stages. Brilliant. It was a really good place, actually, really really good gig. And um, we did uh, two songs there, all live. And then I thought no more of it. And, um, but um, later in 1978, I kind of officially joined the Kate Bush band. Mm. And then uh, uh, actually it kind of got political because um, the producer wanted to use his band. Uh, actually, all of those guys in that band are people I've worked with since. Um, the band was basically... Um, the um, Alan Parsons Project Band. Okay. And it was David Payton on bass and Ian Bernson on guitar. <laughs> uh, David Payton and I worked with, together many years with, with Elton. And, um, and Stuart Elliott on drums. And Stuart and I are old buddies. We're very old buddies now. And we actually traded a lot of gigs during that time. But um, I remember we were doing the Lionheart album and it kind of got political. We ended up doing all the demos and then... Um, we did about half a dozen tracks down in the south of France, and then we left, and the producer brought um, his boys in, and they basically replaced all our tracks, but two. And we ended up on two tracks on that album. Uh, I wasn't terribly happy about that, so I left the band. Um, and I did an audition for the Tom Robinson band, and got the gig. So I was in the second lineup of the TRV 
Superb. And um, that was probably my first major tour. So uh, meeting Kate was the first major thing, but the next thing that happened was the Tom Robinson band. And I toured the, the UK, Europe, and then the UN, United States and, and all of North America, mm. all the way across 1979 uh, until the band kind of dissolved. And then I did some solo stuff for Tom. So I'd say the Tom Robertson band was my first real experience of, um, of, of a major act. They were massive, weren't they, at the time? Yeah. I mean, we did in the summer of 79, well, we did a UK tour in, early in 79, around Easter time. That was, you know, that was the traditional time. You, you get after Christmas and then people would come into the, 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 the Easter period for, for the first tours. And then the second set of tours would either be midsummer mm-hmm. where you do festivals or you'd end up doing an autumn tour. You'd start in September and right, work your way through to October, and November. Yeah, yeah. Um, the TRB, we toured the UK earlier that year. And then in the summer, early summer, we, uh, we did, um, a number of, um, yeah, this is, I mean, these were great gigs as well. We did a number of festival, live festivals in Europe. And this is the lineup. So they'd have a local band on first, then the Tom Robinson band, then Talking Heads, <laughs> then Dire Straits. And at the very end for the, for the Midnight Maniacs, it was Rory Gallagher. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that that was what we toured with, yeah. and you can imagine, you know, being with all that bunch of people. I mean, you know, being with Talking Heads, the original lineup of Talking Heads, yeah. and Dire Straits, it was it was a blast. And we did the whole of the summer um, in Europe, and then we started in the autumn in North America, mm-hmm. and I, we did this massive tour of North America, um, and it was just a massive eye opener for me. It was a huge, huge thing. It was my first real proper tour. You know, we were staying in Ramada inns and holiday inns. and Pinch yourself moment. Oh, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, you know, we, we yeah, it was brilliant. It was great. And, and Tom was one of the best bosses I ever had. He paid us really well. Yeah. Uh, plus, we could sign for everything. You know, everything was signed on a tab and um, we got per diems. But, like, you know... We, it was it was brilliant it was land of milk and honey <laughs> <laughs> oh absolutely it's just an incredible story it re- i mean as, as i said already your back catalogue is just it's endless it really is it goes on and on um so where did i mean how did obviously you've played for some huge names i'm looking here i've got uh i've got elton john obviously barry manilow um Pavarotti. <laughs> that's did yeah, you well so I mean, the Pavarotti thing, the Pavarotti thing is we did a big duet with Elton mm. and Luciano, um, which is the duet of Live Like, uh, uh, Live like Horses for the, um, actually the last album I did with Elton um, in 1997, the, the 97 album. So that was really, that, that was, um, we did that song, Live Like Horses, and Pavarotti came and, and did that. And he came to a gig that we did in Bologna, I think, before that. How, how was it working, uh, you know, perhaps indirectly maybe, but how was that? I mean, what was he like? What was uh, Luciano like? Oh, definitely larger than life. Mm. You know, when we met him in Bologna, you know, he went up to Elton and gave him a huge, great kiss on both cheeks and said, Maestro! <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate in respect, eh? 
Yeah, it was. It was definite mutual respect because Elton was kind of bowing to him, and there was, you know, they were in the dressing room just before we went on stage, and it was just like one of those moments where you think, okay, all right, I'm sitting here watching this going on. <laughs> it's fascinating. How did, how did the Elton gig come about for you, Charlie? Well, and that's interesting uh, in itself. Uh, and I spoke to someone else about this. Um, by 1985, I was really well established as one of the top session players in the UK. I mean, um, I'd gone through a whole kind of development period um, out of the Tom Robinson band, started working with Judy Zook. I did a couple of tours with her in 8081. And then I was building up um, my resume, doing a lot of, I actually got into um, working a lot with uh, Jeff Wayne Music, who did a lot of jingles. Mm -hmm. And I, I, a lot of jingles and also uh, working for Jeff Wayne himself, I did a number of um, uh, uh, theme tunes for him. Like the theme tune for, um, oh, what, uh, hang on. So Grandstand was the BBC. What was the ITV one? Oh, dear me. What was it? The Saturday afternoon one, was it? Yeah, was it World of Sport or something like that? Or It could have been World of Sport, actually, yes. World of Sport. I did the theme tune for that. And I also started working on his next musical because he'd, he'd done the War of the Worlds musical. Mm -hmm. I started working on stuff for his next musical. But I, basically, I was doing a lot of jingles. I was doing a lot of sessions for people and a lot of songwriting sessions. And then I started, I kind of grad, you know, in those days, you'd do the eight track and 16 track demo sessions for songwriters. And then you'd graduate to doing master sessions on 24 track. And, uh, you know, still it was all analog. Mm -hmm. But um, during that time, I'd done several albums um, with a, a sound engineer called Julian Mendelssohn. Really lovely, uh, extremely laconic um, sense of humour. Great, typical Australian sarcasm. <laughs> um, and, and just the sweetest guy. Actually, he and I have re-established contact recently. He's in Melbourne. And we've had a couple of, um, of uh, Google FaceTime meetings because uh, he wants me to do a project for him, long distance. Yeah. But um, he and another guy uh, I was working with, uh, uh, Steve James, who was actually Sid James's son, right. uh, an engineer who uh, um, engineered the Ruttles albums, amongst other mm. things. Um, he also lives in Australia and we've been friends since the mid seventies, but I was doing a lot of sessions for both of these people. And uh, Julian phoned me up and said, yeah, mate, I'm doing this, this album with uh, Peter Collins producing for this, this brilliant singer, but it, the guy's doing what everything programmed and it just doesn't sound right. It's just, it's kind of sounding stodgy. And he said, I know you can inject some something to it. And I went and did a session for this guy, and this guy was Nick Kershaw. Oh, right. We did two songs for Nick Kershaw, and um, I made them sound better. And then I got brought in to do the rest of the album. So moving on, this is about uh, 83, 84. I started working for Peter Collins, and I did the Gary Moore, Phil Lynott stuff, you know, <laughs> yeah. out in the fields. That was Peter Collins. I did Tracy Ullman, They Don't Know About Us, and then I started working on that album. Um, and, uh, and during that time in the early 80s I'd also been working a lot with Kirsty McColl mm -hmm. who actually wrote They Don't Know About Us yeah. 
I was kind of officially in her band with um, uh, uh, guys from the Blockheads, actually. Well, we have Mickey Gallagher and uh, Norman Watroy, um, and I was working with them as well. So I was doing a lot of freelance work. But moving on to early 85, I mean, I was basically doing 80 or 90 hours of sessions a week. I mean, literally. Wow. I could, but I'd, I'd um, well, Dave Mattox and I were, were doing a lot of work together. And I got a phone call um, to do some sessions. And I was told I'd be there for three days and I'd be doing maybe three or four tracks. I wasn't told who it was for. Um, but I just got this phone call. Now, what had happened was um, Elton was doing his album, the Ice on Fire album. And um, he had got Nick Kershaw and George Michael in to do some guitar and backup vocals on that song, Nikita. Mm-hmm. Actually, Dave Mattox played on that. Dave Mattox and Dave Payton. Great song. Yeah. And it's, a, it's one of those ultimate groove songs. It's like it's, it, Dave, Dave's ridiculous pocket groove, you know, and David Payton playing bass as well. A fretless bass. Um, on that. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fabulous, fabulous mm-hmm. work on that. But um, he was doing this album, the Ice on Fire album with various different rhythm sections. Um, in fact, I think he used um, Queen's rhythm section for a couple of tracks. He used, he used Roger Taylor and John Deacon. Um, but anyway, so he, during the Nikita tracking, he said, I really love that album that you brought out. It was the Human Racing album. He said, so who's your drummer? And Nick said, oh, it's a guy called Charlie Morgan that my producer, Peter Collins, is using on all kinds of things. You know, um, Matt Bianco, I work with Peter Collins okay. on Matt Bianco yeah, as well. Sure. You know, so I was his go-to guy by that time. Um, and that had happened in 84. So Elton said to Gus Dudgeon, I want this bloke on my, I want this, I wanted to play on my album. And so that, so I turned up the Tuesday after Easter 1985 mm-hmm. to the Mill Studios, or uh, it was called The Soul then. It was, um, um, Gus, it was Gus's studio originally, but he'd lost it through um, uh, accountancy mismanagement, should we say. Um, <laughs> but we were working there um, anyway. And um, I turned up at the studio and that's when I found out it was Elton. I mean, literally, I brought my stuff in and got, got all set up. And we did three tracks on the Ice on Fire album for, for Elton. And uh, during that, during those sessions, he said to me, uh, I'm doing this little show at Wembley for Bob Geldof and, and Midge Ewer. I, I don't suppose you'd consider coming and doing it. It's like a 45 minute set and we'll have George Michael on it and Kiki D and we're going to have a few guest artists, but I'm, I'm putting a band together and we'll be rehearsing the week before. And I said, sure, that sounds like a lot of fun. And that was Live Aid. Of course. <laughs> wow what, what are your memories of live aid is it i mean i was talking to steve steve white uh, about this and he you know he says even now it's still fresh in the memory and uh... yeah i mean I, yeah it was pretty it pretty much imprinted on my mind and actually because i realized it was i as we were getting close to it i realized it was a big deal mm. i went and bought myself a self-focusing self-rewinding um uh, 35 mil camera. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have digital cameras in those days, no. but it was a 35 mil camera that I could just point and fire. 
And I thought, I've got to do this because I'm going to have to immortalize this, this yeah. whole thing. It's funny because uh, I met so many people that I knew. I mean, obviously, you know, Nick Kershaw was there. Um, Howard <laughs> Jones was there. Um, Tracy Ullman was there. Um, and, you know, all of those people I'd worked with. And the previous year, I'd been working with Roger Daltrey on his solo album oh, okay. and doing a bunch of TV shows. I remember I'd, I've got a picture somewhere of Roger as he came round the corner backstage and I'm standing there and he went, Charlie, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> and I've actually got the moment where he went, what the fuck are you? And I clicked at the camera. Because, of course, the Who were there, you know. And, and, Everyone and, was there. And Elton and I stood on the side of the stage watching Queen's performance. (laughs) So uh, uh, that's why I've got a bit of an issue with Bohemian Rhapsody, because we weren't there. They they reconstruct it. They show the side of the stage and there's no one there. And there should be Elton and Charlie, because (laughs) we were there on the side of the the whole of the gig. We watched the whole set. Because Elton turned to me halfway and said, Freddie's on fire tonight. And I said, yeah, I know. And we had to follow that. Yeah. Because it was, was it I'm Still Standing you started with? I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've got I a, you did. I, I remember that, I remember watching it. The, the, I'll be honest with you, Live Aid was my reason for picking up drumsticks. Uh, simple as that. Uh, I remember watching it. I, I was on holiday with my family and I didn't leave, I didn't leave the, the, the chalet in Butlins or whatever it was for the whole of the day. And I remember my mother going, oh, you got it. And I was, I was just fascinated. But I remember Elton came on. And I remember the appalling feedback through the first song. It was just like, oh, you know. Yeah. yeah and, and, and Elton had no monitors and I had no monitors. Oh. But luckily I could see his foot. And Elton's a big foot stamper. He stamps in time. Yeah. His left foot. And I was watching his left foot going and I'm following his, I'm, I literally I'm looking over my drum kit, following his left foot. And then we did, I think the next song we did was Benny and the Jets. And, um, you know, there's, um, there's a line in that, uh, it's the second line of the song, says the spotlight's hitting something that's been known to change the weather. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember, but it was a blisteringly hot yes. day. Yeah. And people in the front were actually passing out. Mm. They were hosing people down <laughs> and they were lifting girls up and carrying them to the side so that St. John Ambulance people could revive them. Because the people were passing out and they were going, someone else has passed out and lifting them over the, you know, the poor people, they were just dying of heat, which is very unusual at Wembley, but, yeah, yeah. you know. And then at literally the opening bars of Benny and the Jets, when he sang that, the heavens opened <laughs> above us. And I remember Elton, at some point, he pointed up saying the spotlight's hitting something that's been known to change the weather. And everybody in the audience was going, yeah, you know, it was like, it Magic was one of those moment. moments. Oh. <laughs> but I, I, it must have, I mean, to, to be, I mean, it's, it's a huge part of history of music now, isn't it? That, that you know, it's, it's there forever. I mean, most people have got the DVD. And to have been part of that must be, um, ah, well, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. And I mean, we went to the after show party. I was standing on the side when they did the big mass photograph of everybody mm. with all of the guys from Spandau Ballet, all the Who, you know, David Bowie, um, Elton, George Michael, you know, I mean, did all of these people all just standing there in a room behind 
Wembley Stadium, you know, backstage. And then we, we went to the after show, you know, the after party and hung out with them. And uh, I remember getting in this horrible traffic jam, leaving, leaving the, the, the place, you know. <laughs> El- Elton had a compound in the car park at Wembley Stadium. <laughs> he brought in an RV and he had a, a compound with security guards and fences and people were dropping in and saying hello and having a drink and going off, you know, so, and, you know, cause these were in the bad old days. These were in the drinks and drug days. So yeah, yeah, of course, you know, uh, there was plenty of that around before we even went on stage. <laughs> we didn't. So I remember his, yeah. His, his, his caravan was parked in a compound backstage kind of cordoned off. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I should I should um, I should publish a few photographs. I should. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, you know, these are things that I mean, we never get to see what goes on us, us, us regular beings, what goes on backstage. And um, it, it's I, I find it fascinating. I really do. So obviously that, that was the start of quite a long, uh, a long relationship with Elton, wasn't it? it was, you were yeah, I mean, we came off stage after our 45 minute set as we were walking off stage. Uh, Elton was walking along with John Reed, his manager. And mm-hmm. he, I remember him jerking his thumb back and said, let's put this show on the road. And then I got the phone call. And uh, the first two years in the, and I was in the band, I was on a salary, you know. They, mm. they, uh, and I was still doing sessions when we weren't touring. But we did that. That first tour started in autumn of 85 and ended with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra concerts for the last two months of 1986, leading up to the 15th of December, I think that was the last show we did in Sydney. Incredible. Uh, we had a six-week six week tour at the end of, you know, that was with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and we were flying around Australia with a 92-piece orchestra. Like a uh, dream, dream job. That was another tra- trendsetter, you know. It was one of those things. Nobody had really done that with a full-size orchestra before. Mm-hmm. Charlie, are you are you are you are you, um, are you a reader, or are you, uh, yeah. you you are a reader? Yeah. yeah, I do read. Well, I learned piano a little bit of piano in the early days, and then I kind of taught myself drum music. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, just I understood the length of the notes. So, of yeah, uh, yeah. So I did quite a lot of reading stuff. I mean, I uh, one of the things I um, in the mid seventies, I cut my teeth on doing these BBC sessions for Ray, BBC Radio Two. Um, we would do six songs and the band was basically full rhythm section, sometimes with two guitarists. So it was like guitar, bass, drums, maybe a second guitarist, keyboard player, four brass and 12 strings. Right. Yeah. You know, so it was over 20 piece band. Yeah. And we would do these tracks, these kind of light rock tracks. Uh, we do six in a session. It was, it was, these were weird sessions because we would start at 9.30 and there was a half-hour break in the middle, but we'd finish at one. So it was like a standard 10 to one, but there was a half-hour break where we'd go to the canteen. Um, and it was for You, The Night and The Music. Do you remember that um, radio show that they used to do? Oh, I'm not sure. It was on late at night. And it was these were all pop standards that were kind of, they were softened mm. for Radio 2. Yes. This was the Musicians Union's requirement 
for what they called needle time. So they had to use like a 20-piece band or more mm -hmm. because then they got that many man hours of needle time for Radio 1. Right, I see. The Musicians Union required them to do these sessions and we'd record these songs. The, the, the thing about it is that this stuff was edge of the seat session work because we do six songs in one session with a 20-piece band all straight down to half-inch two-track in the corner. No multi-track. Yeah. Went straight to half-inch two-track. So it was one of those things where I learned not to stick my neck out too far. Yeah. And, and we'd get into the session, and I'd open up the chart, and normally there were like five or six sheets, you know, open up the chart, and I'd start to speed read and go, okay, I know that, all right, oh, big drum fill, all right, okay, and I'm... And we'd start to, so you got to kind of pre-read the chart, but then you were getting drum sounds while you were running the first song, and they were quite often running it with the light on. <laughs> and if everything went okay, the take. The, like, they would say, anyone got any confessions to make? And you're kind of going, uh, <laughs> you know, because if you said, I think the drummer needs to do another one, 20 pairs of eyes would be looking over their charts at you you know so it was it was yeah very important not to fuck up not to yeah. make any mistakes yeah yeah and, and and so i got pretty good at kind of speed reading stuff and pulling charts out and yeah and actually the the melbourne symphony orchestra stuff that we did the arrangements um they were paul buckmaster arrangements a lot of them um but james newton howard took them and augmented them to full-size orchestra okay so he, he took it, Paul's original arrangements, and then he'd done a number of arrangements, I think on um, Too Low for Zero, I think he played uh, various albums he played keyboards on and did some string arrangements on. So he had done, uh, so they basically took all the orchestral stuff and they expanded them for a 90-piece orchestra. And when we got to Brisbane, uh, two days before the first show, we had two days of rehearsals. Uh, we'd been doing quite a lot of the stuff in the rock set, but it was totally different with the orchestra. Yeah. And um, I remember that, um, that I was handed a beautifully copied chart to work with for all of the songs for the orchestral set. Mm. Um, and I made good use of them, you know. Yeah. Uh, they wanted us to kind of learn them by the, you know, Elton wasn't terribly keen on us all standing there with charts. So uh, uh, I think I was, the first two, out, first two gigs we did, I was kind of leaning over and looking at the chart, which was down next to me. But by that time, I knew the songs well enough. And, you know, by the time we got back to Sydney, at the end of the 26 dates, um, there were no charts in sight yeah. for us. Yeah, of course, of course. Ah, fantastic. Well, look, I, I, you were um, a big part of my teenage years, indirectly. And I want to bring up the bill. <laughs> Because, right, I loved the bit. I still do. I, I loved it as a teenager. And you were heavily involved in the writing of that with Andy Pask, weren't you? Yeah, um, we were very lucky. We'd done a lot of library music uh, for KPM Music Library, which is a, an affiliate of EMI. Mm. And um, they said, well, you're a rhythm section that works together well. Why don't you do an album of kind of rhythm section stuff? And we did six songs, I think it was, the six tracks, which was half of a, uh, a library album um, that then, you know, ended up in the KPM Music Library. Mm -hmm. 
in the early, it was in the early 80s, like 84, 83, 84, I think we were doing this. We did six tracks and um, they paid for it all. And we were on a 50-50 split with our set, each other and then with 50-50 split with K- KPM. Yeah. And it got picked up by this kind of off-the-wall police series that was on, I don't know if you remember, but the very first 13-part serialization was just once a week late at night. I don't, I don't remember the first. No, I remember it being on at eight o'clock or whatever. Well, they got to prime time after they did two series. They did two seasons, as they call them here. Um, and they were on late at night, just like Monty Python's was on the BBC late at night yeah. originally. And then it went to a prime time slot. And then we got this announcement that, um, that they got an announcement that they were going to a twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday slot at 8 p.m. And could we rearrange the the um, the, the music? Because the music, I can't remember what the original music was called, but it had a it had a silly title, you know. Um, and um, they wanted us to rearrange it and put some lead lines on it. And actually, Andy had a great idea that we were going to get a friend in. Um, um, Phil Todd had an Ewe, you know, the electronic wind instrument, mm, mm. the electronic version of the saxophone. Yeah. And uh, that theme tune became the very first theme tune in England ever to have Ewe on it. Uh-huh, right, okay. Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Tom Scott was using it with the LA Express quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and so Phil Todd had this Ewe, and Andy wrote a, a kind of chart out for him for the lead line that he had an idea for. And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, Andy pretty well got that, that, that idea for the, the original theme. And um, so we went in and re-recorded the whole tune and it became the Bill theme tune. And I have to look at my PRS now because they've still got some, the original title, but this was retitled as the Bill theme tune. Yeah. And then we still carried on getting the same amount of money, but the same the same percentage. But um, yeah, it paid my mortgage for a while. You know, it was another twenty five years. It's a great bit. I mean, it's it's such a. Um, at the time when I when I remember watching it, I remember thinking this is a great a great thing to play along with. And it's, it's such a drummer's piece of music, isn't it? You know, especially the way it finishes. Um, yeah. Did you have quite an input in that? Certainly rhythmically, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it was, I think we were messing around with a sequence that I'd built that was in 7-4, but it was basically, it was, it was really nothing more than a bar of three with a skip in it, yeah. followed by a bar of four. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that, you know and, that, and it kind of rolled quite easily. It wasn't a very difficult 7-4. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that was the basis for, for the tune. Because I, I always thought it was a it was a it feels it feels like a seven, doesn't it? Obviously, until you see it written down, it's, it's uh, seven four. It goes to four four in the core in the yeah. in the the second in the B section, if you like. But it um, it was in seven four, and then they when they did a rearrangement of it, they did a rearrangement like a disco rearrangement in four four. But <laughs> Andy and I were horrified. And they said, "Don't worry, you're still going to get the same the same royalties for it." We went. Oh, all right, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that that you know, it's a big part of my my teenagers. And the second part 
um, of, of, of you shaping me, if you like, was your involvement at the time with Premier. Now, as far as I'm concerned, some of the finest drums that have ever been made and will ever be made is the Signia. I, I, I've, I've had three Signia kits and I've loved every single one. How, were you heavily involved in the development for the Signia? Yeah, I was actually, I was employed. I was paid by them to go mm. up to meetings and offer my, um, my input. And in fact, we flew to New York and met up with a bunch of US endorsees um, to, to discuss what they wanted out of, out of this new drum kit. And originally, the Signia drum kit, we had, there were a couple of prototypes, and I'd love to know where they are. Mm. There were a couple of prototypes that had no expense spared, absolutely no expense spared, but we knew that they were going to be way too expensive to make. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the ideas we wanted to do, um, well, Joe Franco from Twisted Sister was a, was a premier endorsee, and he wanted the shells to all be slightly undersized, mm -hmm. four millimeters undersized, so that the, the actual crown of the head would float. Yes, I understand that. So he wanted that, like, a bit like Gretsch, basically. They made the slightly undersized um, shells so that the, the head, the, the sh if you like, the, the actual rim of the head never touched. Yeah. There was a gap all the way around. Was floating uh, almost, the, yeah. Was that, yeah, yeah. That, that was the first thing we did. And the other thing we wanted to try and do, we were working on as much as possible and isolating the shell from the two heads mm -hmm. so that they weren't, so that the lugs weren't too, that they didn't, they didn't interrupt the actual resonance of the head. Yeah. And we even spoke to people at Brighton University, their science institute, um, about the ideal depth for heads for, for toms and the actual but the best pitches for the for the each tom size as well but optimum pitches i mean we worked really heavily with them mm. and then we brought it back to a, a situation where premier were able to actually physically make it and this is all around like 1989 1990 91 yeah and the first Signia rolled off the production line in 92. And in fact, I got the very first, the very first Signia off the production line, which was the, the Versace. Oh, wait, that was the first one. Right. Okay. I, I, they phoned me and we were about to start another tour with Elton in 92. Elton had been in, in and out of rehab and come clean and wanted to go on the road. And this is how the story goes with the Versace kit. Premier phoned me and said, look, we're going to, we're going to start production and you get the very first one off the production line. What do you want? What color do you want it? So I phoned up Elton's office and said, um, what color do we want this kit? And my fax machine in those days, we all had fax machines. Mm -hmm. I my fax machine started to go. And I noticed that it was from uh, somewhere in Milan in Italy. And uh, it started reeling out these complicated drawings and designs and i actually took a photocopy of these i've got a photocopy mm. of jenny versace's original scribbles and it said you know they wanted black and white vertical stripes with gold hardware and um he wanted a specific number of stripes for each drum so he even said the percentage of stripes changes so the width of the stripes changes 
And I took this to Premier and said, gave it to them and said, look, this is what Gianni Versace wants. And they said, really? Okay, all right, we'll do this. And I remember I went and picked up the kit on Good Friday, 1992. My drum tech and I drove up to Leicester and we picked it up. Mm. Um, and we got there and saw it coming off the production line and being finished. Um, and the, 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 all the crew there were saying, you know what? Yeah, I wasn't too sure about this at first, but it actually looks pretty good. Mm. And that was, that's the Versace kit. It's an iconic looking kit. It really is. Yeah. Was it, was it wrapped, Charlie, or was it a day? Uh... No, it's actually, pa actually painted. Was it really? Wow. And I think they did the black, they did the black first, and then they, they um, um, screened it all off. Mm. They taped it off. And then they did the white on top. So I believe the white is overlaid on top of the black. All hand finished, amazing. I mean, great yeah. sounding. I mean, you must have been thrilled with the outcome because the, the, the fabulous sounding drums, really. They are, and I mean, those uh, the, my original ones were the ones with all the glue rings on the top mm. and bottom. Yeah. But the later ones, they actually managed to do with one more ply. And Premier were developing that flush ply. I don't know if you remember. Yes, I do. They weren't overlapping. They were developing a flush ply where it actually each shell was flush and then they glued it and then they set it mm, mm. and then they chopped it off at each end. But it was done at a slight angle so that the seam ran uh, diagonally across the actual uh, depth of the drum. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't start and finish at the same place because then it made it stronger. But um, And then they, they put the glue rings in. But... Uh, Later on, they made them without the glue rings. And uh, I think I've got a 75th anniversary kit, which doesn't have the glue rings in it. You don't have the Versace kit anymore, then, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah, I do. Oh, you've still got it. Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Really. In the corner of my basement over there. And I, I use it. There's this book I do um, Elton tribute shows with. And I've been taking it. I've been putting it in the back of the car. <laughs> and I've built myself a platform that hinges. Yeah. I can put the rack on it. I've got the original rack that my drum tech and I built because it was a kind of very industrial rack, if you remember. It was kind of grey. It was grey gas piping. I had, I had the poster of the kit on my wall for... for it's, I probably still got it somewhere, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah, we ended up with two racks and the kit was going back and forth. Mm. The drums were going back and forth across the Atlantic, but one rack was being kept in America and one rack, rack was over in the UK. Ah, uh, just, just, uh, this is... Uh... It was all galvanised, you know, it's like silver galvanised. Yeah. Because Jenny Versace's set was all kind of silver and black and gold and white. All very themed. <laughs> just... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I love that kit. I play it now every time, every time I go and do one of these Elton tribute gigs with this bloke, I go there and it's, it's a bit of a schlep to drag it out of the car. It barely gets in my car. Mm. You know, uh, I made, made sure I'd get it in the car. Uh, we actually did, just before the lockdown, we did um, a whole bunch of gigs. We did 10 gigs in 14 days um, in Florida just to open up this whole Elton tribute concept. Yeah. And it, was, it went down really well. And I drove down to Florida. It was a 10-hour drive. I drove down there and meet, met these guys because they're from South Carolina. Mm. Um. <laughs> And we did the 10 shows and I drove back. It was in February before the lockdown. The crowd, the crowd must have enjoyed seeing that kit because it's, it's iconic, isn't it? 
It really it is. is. And a number of them are kind of nerdy enough to know that that was the kit, you know. Mm. And, uh, and the guy that does Elton uh, kind of gives me a name check at the end and says, you know, I'm kind of the ringer in the band. Um, <clears throat> but every time I got behind that kit to start playing it, it just felt like home. Mm. Oh, it yeah, just, it, like it, everything was in the right, everything was there. It was all still in, you know, the four toms, 10, 12, 14, 16, no floor tom, all mounted. Yeah. 22-inch yeah. bass drum with a double kick pedal and then a second snare, the piccolo snare on the left. And, um, and I, actually, the hi-hat pedal and the bass drum pedal were axis pedals. Okay, yeah. And the hi-hat doesn't have a tripod. It's actually, it's got a bass, and then the hi-hat itself is clamped to the rack okay. with a multi-clamp. Yeah. So you, you have to put the hi-hat in, kind of screw it up, and it holds it then, it holds it at an angle. Okay, all right. Okay. An angle that's really easy to play because it comes in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because I've got long legs, you know, so that setting up a hi-hat that sits vertically can be a bit of a, a either I've got to set it up too close for my foot, mm. or if it's ideal for my foot, then I'm playing too far away. Yeah. And the great thing about this hi-hat was I, we could bend it in and put it exactly where it needed to be, and the bass could be where it wanted to be. So my legs would be stretched out, but I'm playing right here. You know, it's really nice. And it's never going to move. <laughs> it's never going to, not a millimeter. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, such, uh, it brings back some great memories of, of you know, my kind of teenage years. And I say, I've, 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 I don't think they'll, there's some great drums around, but so, definitely some of the finest sounding and looking drums I, I think I've. Ever the, the Signia and Janista ranges were really, good drums because they'd had drummers involved mm. in the development. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Premier did that totally correctly. I think they were absolutely um, right on the money as far as, as, as what they, they planned to do, bring a drummer in. And I mean, I was also using notes from all the other guys that, yeah. that were there, like the Americans and various other people over in the UK who were saying, well, if we could do this with it, if we could do that, you know, we were we were do, putting all the ideas together, and I was the bloke that was going down to the factory, going up to the factory in Leicester, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, like two or three times a month, I was going up there, and they were paying me. They were paying me an hourly rate to go up there as a consultant. That's perfect. Doesn't get any better, does it? No, it was great. It was really good, and I got I got into a, a great relationship with all the people there. You know, and some of them, of course, are now with the British Drum Company. Of course. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And another fine uh, maker of drums. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, Indeed. I, I met them all at the NAMM show this year. Uh, I got to go out to the NAMM show in Los Angeles. Brilliant. Because I know uh, the, uh, yeah. reason, the, the Nico, Nico's uh, new kit was unveiled there, I believe, wasn't it? Well, yeah. And I just paid Natal a visit. I'd just gone and seen... Um, George and all that lot, you know, George Frederick and, mm -hmm. and those guys and um, chatted with them. And I was walking back. I would played a gig the, uh, on the Thursday outside with um, uh, John Jorgensen. That's how I got to go there. And I was there for the, the whole duration of the show. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was the last day I think I was paying my respects to various people. I was walking out. And I was walking past 
the BDC booth and I could see Nico's kit set up there. Couldn't miss and it. there, signing autographs, <laughs> was Nico. Right. And as I walked past, he went, Oi, mush! <laughs> Don't you go anywhere. And so I stood around and he signed a whole bunch of autographs and then we had a long, long chat and he introduced me to everybody. And of course, half of the people had actually seen the signia, Versace signia, come yeah. off the production line. So, yeah. you know, they, yeah, Isn't that we, lovely, though? we had a long chat about that. And then about two or three weeks later, I did a gig in Fort Lauderdale. And I don't know, but he, he, Nico lives down that way. Yes, yeah, of course. And I gave him a call. And so I told him I was doing this gig in Fort Lauderdale. And he said, well, you've got to come up and have some ribs because he has a rib restaurant. Okay, right, all right. Yeah, he has a barbecue rib restaurant. Brilliant. So I went up in a big rainstorm, but I got an Uber and I went up to see him. And we sat there. And sat, we chewed the fat, literally. <laughs> he, brought, he got his girls to bring all the stuff in. And I, we just had this massive meal in front of us. And we're sitting there having our barbecue ribs and, and, and chatting about BDC. Because he's got a fairly decent stake in the whole company, isn't he? He's, uh, yeah, I think he helped them financially. Right, okay. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know, I know Keith and I, I know Ian... Uh, quite well but but not not many of the others but the certain yeah. impressive drums i have to say and it's nice to see that that you know obviously premier famous for being a british company and i know they're still going in in some respect i don't know you know i, I don't think it's on these yeah shows. but they're a shadow of what they were yeah. i mean I think the trouble is it's all being made in the far east now yeah. none of it's being made in the uk no no and uh, the only the only person i know there is karen mm. Karen Whiteland, so that's it. different. So you're with Natal these days, is that? Yeah, yeah. great sounding drums. Are you you happy with them? They're sounding good. Yeah, I was one of their earliest signings. Um, I was actually, um, I think I was approached. I think originally I was approached before George Frederick left Premier and joined. Mm. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, they're very well made. Um, and, of course, they're all assembled officially. They're assembled at the Marshall factory. So yeah. they are British made. Yes, of course. If you like. Yeah. And I did the advertising campaign over here, and we actually did the British are coming. I wore a red, I, <laughs> I wore a red coat, and I had this big snare. I was holding the snare drum going, <laughs> the British are coming. Oh, and, lovely. Um, you know, I think... They had plans to do, um, I think they had some plans to do more of an advertising campaign this year. And of course, everything just went went to pieces. Yeah, of course. Um, but I've still got to speak to them about that. Um, and uh, the person actually signed me up was Paul Marshall. Oh, right, okay. Jim Sun. Jim Sun, yeah. yeah. He signed me. Um, and then he kind of left the company. I think he went semi-retired. Hmm. And they brought George in from Premier. He's a great guy. Great guy, yeah, absolutely. He spent he spent decades trying to steal me over to Pearl. <laughs> Every time I was at a music fair, I'd be walking past the Pearl stand and there'd be this dapper chap. And he'd go, Here, Charlie, when are you gonna come play a real drum company? <laughs> it was you know, if I was at Frankfurt or the NAM show or the British Music Fair. He was always there. He was trying to trying to steal me away. 
It's a nice uh, compliment, uh, isn't it? It's a nice compliment. But in the end, he went to Premier, and uh, and then he got Whitey to play mm -hmm. Premier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was there for a, a, a good while as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what what's what are you up to at the moment? And obviously, there's not people aren't doing much generally at the moment at all, are they? So are you are you managing to keep busy? Well, all my gigs went away in early March. I did I did a big. I do a lot of these corporate shows where they're multi-artist shows, and I work for four, five, six mm. artists, and we just do their hits. Yeah. Some of these people I know quite well. Um, that gig in Fort Lauderdale I did not long before the lockdown was for five different artists. Um, and then in the first week of March, I went down to Orlando to do a yearly show that I do, which is, um, it's a kind of, um, it's an awards ceremony for um, Holiday Inn Resorts, who are the, they're, they're the subdivision of Holiday Inn that have all the timeshares. Okay. And they're, they're, they, they do this thing every year where they sink a million bucks into a show that we do at the Hard Rock in Orlando. Right. And it's a huge, huge show. Yeah. Uh, this year we had 14 artists all doing four or five songs. So it's a big deal. I mean, it's a three-day event. I, I do the, you know, we, we go and set up, and then we rehearse all day, and then we do the show day. I feel um, like you're the house drummer for, for, for all those artists. All of them. Wow. Okay. I'll take it that's a reading gig. Uh, I write my own charts yeah, and yeah. I've been woodshedding for the month prior to yeah. the, the gig. Yeah, of course. Um, but they actually announced straight after the lockdown started, they said, we're not doing any more corporate gigs this year because we're going to be hurting. Mm, because, yeah. you know, they're part of the hospitality industry and the, the big industry that's been hit is hospitality, you know, um, airlines and hotels and vacations. And, so they've been hit really badly. Um, so I lost... I've already lost about six gigs from, through them. Yeah. And I've lost a number of other shows. Um, so I haven't been gigging at all, mm. uh, but I'm still doing online sessions. That's good. Um, with the help of, you know, my studio set up, which is across town. Mm -hmm. And then my, my V drum, as I was talking about, my V drum set up. So here I can do some MIDI sessions for people. Sure. And I'm doing several projects. Um, there's a band... Who had some fame, actually. They're from, where are they from? I'm not sure exactly. They're further north. I, I, I'm working for a producer in Yorkshire. Um, and I think they're all up in that region. There's a band called Castanark. Not familiar with them, but I shall have a look. Yeah, C-A-S-T-A-N-A-R-C. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been doing a new album for them. And we've cut seven tracks, I think, all already. Right. Yeah during this lockdown because they've been able to do it and yeah. he's been you know i've been sending the, the, the songs back to them mm -hmm. it's been a lot of fun um they enjoyed a certain amount of success i think in the 80s and 90s um so it's a kind of revisiting of their music and i really like I, it, it's kind of prog rock um okay. atmospheric prog rock mm. um so they're bringing out a new album and that's going to be a lot of fun and then i'm working for two producers um both who are both of them are living in australia uh, working for them doing different songs for different artists so as a um one of the producers steve james um who i worked at chapel with we worked with a guy called phil ram who we thought was going to get a deal he, he was he was poised to sign a deal and it just never happened and we did about an album and a half's worth of material mm. 
um, and I'm friends with Phil and I'm friends with Steve. And in fact, Phil had a new song, which is kind of about the lockdown. And so we've done, we've done a lockdown song. And he's put, uh, Steve is putting it together and mixing it over in Australia. So, you know, we're going to get some product out despite all of this stuff going on. Thank God for technology, eh? Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, I mean, it's great that I can actually still, you know, record for people. Mm -hmm. And then um, I just happened to do a track, which apparently is getting a huge amount of airplay. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, Rolling Stone have been releasing um, a video of a song each week. Okay. Um, About three weeks ago, I saw... um, they did a thing with Dave Mason. They did, um, you know, they, they did a cover, his cover of his own song, Feeling All Right, you know, the, the big Joe Cocker hit. Yes, yeah. Dave Mason from uh, um, um, uh, from Traffic wrote the song. Yeah. And so he did a remake of it, and I think he got Mick Fleetwood on, on drums, and he got the Doobie Brothers to play and sing. And uh, um, who else is on it? Um, oh, it was, it was uh, God, there was a whole bunch of people. A friend of mine played keyboards on it, but um, it's worth looking at. Mm. But they did a, re- a remake of Feeling All Right. And then I happened, a friend of mine happened to phone me up and say, look, I need you to play a little bit of drums on this track that we're doing, which is a remake by my friend Jim Wilson and Arlo Guthrie, Right, okay. of, of an old song called Hard Times with an um, amazing gospel choir on it and Stanley Clark on bass. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, I'm only in for about a verse and a half, but it's, uh, it's all brushes. Mm. And um, so Rolling Stone released that last week and it's been, it's like it's hundreds of thousands of airplays um, on YouTube. It's, it's, it's a YouTube stream. And, um, Have a look. So I just did that, and that's really can't. That's this. That's really taken off. It's snowballed like mad. It's um, uh, it, that's quite interesting. So I just happened to be on that, mm, mm. and for me, it was a bucket lister because Stanley Clark was on it. You know, so yeah, exactly. Now, now I, now I can say I played with Stanley Clark <laughs> remotely. It, it's it, the yeah. technology is just. It's been a, a total game changer, hasn't it? You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of good come out of the lockdown as well as. Obviously, I know the gigs have gone. There's nothing we can do, but people have adapted, haven't they? And, you know, just got on with it. Yeah, well, they've already gone back to doing gigs in Nashville, and then we've had a big spike. So, you know. Oh, really? A number, number of my friends um, were back playing regular gigs. A couple of people I cycle with. Mm. And then they said that, uh, you know, that the spike happened, and, uh, and they all shut the whole area down, you know, Broadway, which is where all the clubs and pubs are. Yeah. Um, but they tried to reopen it. And, uh, and now they're, they're not allowed to open again for a, a while. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be... Blew, they blew it. They, they did it too early, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going um, to be a slow burner, this one, isn't it, I think? They weren't patient enough, you know. They probably could have, if they'd lasted properly with proper lockdown... For four months, we probably could have eradicated it. But as it was, mm. you know, a number of they're, they're all these stupid anti-maskers here who <laughs> just, uh, I don't understand the mentality. I mean, I personally know at least two 
people in the UK who died from COVID. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's it's serious, isn't it? It's no, you know. It is. I mean, not, not the thing is, yeah. I mean, for most of the people, the symptoms are similar to flu, but unfortunately, there are a couple of. There's a, a small percentage of people um, who basically will get these spontaneous blood clots in the lungs and in the body, and they die from blood clots. They're basically the blood clots yeah. spontaneously. Oof, damn. Both my friends died. Uh, and they autopsied them. They died from breathing difficulties. Uh, one of them died in less than 24 hours. Yeah, me, that's miserable, isn't it? That's horrible. The ambulance, by the time the ambulance was called... He was dead. Dear me. It, they autopsied him. You know, gave an autopsy afterwards, and um, and he he had hundreds of blood clots in his lungs. Dear me. Well, yeah. well, look, we can't finish on that note. That's no. certain. But I've got one more question for you. Um, they've been getting some great view viewing numbers. These videos um, from a drummer who's done <laughs> everything. What advice would you give to some youngsters coming through these days, you know, with, with it all ahead of them? What would you, if you had a few words of advice, what would it be? Um, well, uh, Muff Winwood once said to me, um, this was regarding doing session work. and You know, people, people start in the industry and they start saying that they start with a particular style in mind. Okay, they think, oh, I'm going to be a heavy rock drummer or I'm going to be death metal or, you know. Mm. Um, but Muff said to me, he said, never turn anything down. And it's funny because, you know, in the mid-80s, I got a phone call from a, um, a friend of a friend who had a country band and I'd never played country. And this, this guy had a problem. He was playing about two miles away from me at the Red Lion in Brentford. I lived in Chiswick. I've played in the Red Lion in Brentford a long time ago. And he said, listen, he said, my drummer's broken down on the other side of London and I've been given your phone number. Would you come out and do a gig with me? It's country and western. And I said, well, I don't play any country. I don't play country. And this guy, Tony Griffin, said to me, he said, Charlie, I'll point you through everything. Don't worry about it. It's, I know you can do this. Come on, come and do this. And I went and did the gig and he basically just saw me. And it was all the old classic country, mm. which they play here. They was all recorded here in Nashville. <laughs> you know. So I did this gig and it, it was the start of a long relationship. And he had a, always had a great band. Start of a long relationship playing pubs and clubs and some of the Irish clubs in Northwest London, you know, Harlesden, Willesden, the Mean Fiddler we played a number of times. Yeah. And it was a really good call and I wasn't a country drummer but the funny thing is it gave me a kind of grounding so Muff Winwood saying never turn anything down no matter what if you get offer if, if you get an offer from somebody don't turn it down yeah don't think oh this is not my style of music you know somebody you're a, you're a thrash metal drummer and somebody says hey I've got this jazz gig that next week would you like to come and do it do it mm. you're gonna lose you know, learn a different style. It's going to add to whatever you do. Totally. That's, that would be my advice. Never turn anything down. I think that seems like solid advice to me. And I don't think you're the only one that said that. So it seems a common theme, which is an obvious one really, isn't it? But absolutely. Well, if you, the thing about it is it's all very well to put yourself in a particular genre or style. Mm. Like, cubbyhole yourself. Mm. 
But if you are wanting to be a serious musician and earn a living at it, then you're going to have to play different styles. Yeah, yeah. including many you don't like, perhaps, or not comfortable. Yeah, possibly, or they may not be your cup of tea, but, you, you know, yeah, that's, that's, if somebody's going to pay you a couple of hundred quid to do a, a, a session or a gig, mm. do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute treat talking to you, and I mean that. Uh, I know everyone's going to enjoy this, so um, I guess it must be, what about, you're about three o'clock in the afternoon there at the moment? It's just yeah, going to 3 p.m. It's just yeah. going dark here in the UK, so it's, uh, I really appreciate it. I really do. It's been fantastic talking to you. You're very welcome. You're Thanks really for giving welcome. your time, and I'll see you next time. Thank you, Charlie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.